second reading this morning is Joel chapter 2. I will read verses 12 through 17. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of God. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for calling us here this morning. We pray now that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In three weeks, I'm going to ask you for $12,500. I figured I might as well tell you right up front, rather than softening you up with a bunch of religious talk, $12,500 over and above what you were already giving to maintain the day-to-day, week-to-week operation of this church. And I'm going to ask you for that money at the end of this 21-day fast, the fast that begins today. Scripture says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. And this is what our session has done. The session has blown the trumpet, they've called a solemn assembly, they are gathering the people, and today we consecrate a fast. And at the end of the 21 days, we will present our grain offering and our drink offering to God, $12,500 worth. And that money is going to be used to bring in outside consultants, folks from the EPC's Go Center, to help us get this congregation moving again. Because the sober truth is that we went backwards in the past 12 months. And that was the first time that we've gone backwards in the 14 years that I've been with you. And neither I nor the session plan on just sitting by and letting it happen a second year. The session and I intend in these next 21 days to be before the altar of the Lord calling out, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the people. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Since 2006, a half a year after... I arrived fresh out of seminary, wet behind the ears, having no idea how to run a church. This congregation began to move forward. 
ever so slowly, but ever so steadily, in a positive direction. Let me give you the long view for just a moment. For most of the first hundred years that this congregation was here, our membership was around a hundred people. And then in 1950s, the farmland around Huntington Valley was developed and the suburbs boomed, and this church boomed along with it. Our membership peaked in 1964 at 780. Now that was 55 years ago. Half of the members of this church weren't even born at that time. I was three years old. We peaked in 1964, and then a slow and steady decline began. We never had a big crisis in this church. There were no fights or church splits, just a steady aging of the congregation and a slipping in the membership numbers. When I arrived, our membership stood at 178, which, by the way, is a little above average for a Presbyterian church. There's nothing wrong with a church with 178 members. That can be a perfectly healthy and vibrant church. There's something Special about churches that size, people know each other, the pastor is accessible, relationships are authentic and long-term. Our problem wasn't our size, our problem was our demographics. The problem was that the mix of people inside the church didn't look like the mix of people outside the church. As a congregation, we were becoming steadily older and steadily whiter than the community that we had been called to serve. Over the course of half a century, we stopped looking like the people around us, which is a bad sign for any church. Now, there's nothing wrong with being old and there's nothing wrong with being white. I'm both and I like myself just fine. But there is something wrong with a church that no longer looks like the community that it's been called to serve in terms of the range of ages and the racial mix. When that happens, it's a sign that the church is cut off and is having zero effect on the mission field that God has given them. And honestly, when churches like that go out of business, no one in the neighborhood even notices Because those churches weren't doing anything in the neighborhood anyway. It is my unshakable conviction that our congregation should be a microcosm of the body of Christ in this community that we serve. And if you want to see what the body of Christ in a 10 mile radius of HVPC looks like, then I invite you to visit Valley Christian School And watch the kids on the playground at recess. Those children come from 50 different churches. And their beautiful faces are every shade from chocolate brown to milky white. Each one of them made in the image of God. Every one of them a child of the covenant. And that remarkable, enviable diversity has not been the result of do-goody social engineering or government intervention... That diversity simply reflects the natural complexity of the body of Christ. And now hear me clearly. Our church 
needs to look more like our school. In the 14 years I've been here, we've made progress, but we've got a ways to go. Now, it is also my unshakable conviction that our congregation should be a cradle-to-grave organization. I don't want to go to a church with just young people. I don't want to go to a church with just middle-aged people. And I don't want to go to a church with just old people. We spend so much of our time segregated by age. Young people go to school, middle-aged people go to work, and old people go play bingo, and we never see each other. It's a very weird way to live, a very impoverished way to live. And it seems to me that it's not a very Christian way to live because the Bible speaks about every stage of life because the Bible speaks about how we should take care of children and how we should honor the aged. If I'm only spending time with people of my own generation, then I'm not really living a full life. Now, I chose to come to HVPC 14 years ago because I had a vision of serving an all-ages, all-races congregation. At the time, I was interviewing for my first position as a pastor. My mentor at Princeton Theological Seminary, the Reverend Dr. Hughes Oliphant Old, he told me, Dan, don't go to one of those old churches. They'll wear you out and you won't get anywhere. You need to go into church planting. That's where the action is. But I didn't want to go into church planting. Because I knew from experience that new churches are not cradle-to-grave organizations. New churches serve a very narrow demographically, typically young families and career-age singles. And new churches tend to be racially monochromatic, if you know what I mean. There are white new church plants, and there are black new church plants, and a zebra church plant is as rare as a rainbow-striped unicorn. And so I went looking for a healthy, established church in an area with some racial diversity. Now, when I arrived at HVPC, we were a good deal on the older side of average. There were a whole lot more gray heads in the church than there were in the surrounding neighborhoods. And there was only one white or one non-white member of this church in 2005. But I noticed your school full of young families perfectly reflecting the racial diversity of this area. And I noticed that the chairman of your pastor nominating committee, which, by the way, was the most cantankerous and divided PNC that I met in all of my interviews while I was looking for a job coming out of seminary, I noticed that the chairman of your PNC was Dolores Turner, a distinguished African-American woman. You're one black member who happened to be from Missouri, my home state. After I became pastor, I encouraged Dolores to become an elder. Beginning in 2006, she served on our session for many years. She also became chairman of the Valley Christian School Board. We had many opportunities to talk about race in America, about the burdens and the legacy of slavery and racism in this country. She used to laugh when... She talked about her friends, her black friends, asking her, Dolores, what in the world are you doing in that white church? She had been a Presbyterian long before she came here. 
She'd been a Presbyterian before some of you were born. She had been a member of an historic black Presbyterian church in the Logan section of Philadelphia. And her answer to her friends was, I don't know what I'm doing in that white church. But I know that God has called me there for a purpose. And one of those purposes was me. Because I have to tell you, and I said this at Dolores Turner's funeral, that I would not be here at HVPC if it hadn't been for that godly woman. And for the wisdom of this church in putting her at the helm of the pastor nominating committee. Beginning in 2006, this congregation began to move forward. Membership began to creep up. And what's even more important than the raw membership numbers is the fact that our congregation was beginning to look more and more like the community we serve. Every year we were becoming younger and browner than the year before. We were looking more like the people around us. In part... That was the result of making a conscious decision to make children and families with children a priority at this church. If a church is going to have a future, it must have children. When I arrived here, we didn't have many babies. And our nursery was relegated to the least desirable space in this entire building, downstairs next to the boiler room. I had to scratch my head. What did putting our nursery next to a boiler room which growls like a dragon and reeks of fuel oil, what did that tell visiting families about how much we cared about their kids? I wouldn't put my brooms down there. So we brought the nursery upstairs and we renovated a bright new space and we committed more staff resources to our children's ministry. And guess what happened? The young families who randomly walked into this church, well, they came a second time. And then they began to stick around. And then they joined. And pretty soon, well, it felt like forever, actually. But in time, our problem was that we had too many babies and we needed more space for them, which is the kind of a problem that a church with a future is going to have. Now, if you don't want that kind of problem, the problem of taking care of more and more families with children, that's easy to do. If you don't want that kind of problem, and it is a messy, complicated problem, if you don't want that kind of problem, all you have to do is throw away your future. Remember Esau? For the comfort of a warm bowl of stew now... He threw away his entire future. Churches do it all the time. They throw away their future because they want a little comfort now. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And he had to say that because he needed to rebuke his disciples who wanted to keep the children away from the serious business Of doing church. Keep the little children away. Keep them off our furniture. Stop letting them run in the hallways. Don't give them the best spaces in our building. Because children are messy and noisy. I want you to know that I love 
your messy, noisy children and I want them running around the building. So almost three years ago, I instructed the session to draw up plans for more space to accommodate our growing number of children so that we could continue what had become a pattern of modest but steady membership growth. The kind of growth that was making our church younger and browner every year. The kind of growth that was making our church look more and more like the mission field that God had called us to. A committee was formed. We are Presbyterian after all. Meetings were held. Plans were drawn up. Details were hashed out. But then somehow, mysteriously, maybe not so mysteriously, we lost our nerve, our will to move forward. Because moving forward might cost us some money. Because... Moving forward would be messy and inconvenient for some of us because moving forward was noisy. Because moving forward felt like we were losing our past. The past when we were young and had young children. And so the project hit a wall about a year and a half ago. Well, you know, when you hit an iceberg, the ship doesn't sink immediately. It takes a while. For the water to pour in. But about one year ago, almost exactly one year ago, that water started to come in. And we began to lose some of the young families who had brought so much fresh life to this congregation. In the past 12 months, four young families have left this church. Four young families with parents who tithed with parents who put their shoulder to the wheel around here, who volunteered for uh, our ministries, four young families with a total of 11 children. On a typical Sunday morning, those four families were about 15% of the people in this congregation. I've been in touch with all of those families. None of them left because... They were insulted or offended here. None of them left because they objected to what this church teaches or stands for. Because they sensed that this church was not committed to their children, and this church had lost its vision and drive for the future, they left. And I can't blame them. For the most part, they moved on to younger startup churches, churches that are more demographically narrow, churches that are filled with people who look just like them, churches, however, that are committed to taking care of children and teenagers. As the father of a 10-year-old, I understand the obligation of a parent to ensure that his child is in a church where he will be valued and nurtured and cared for. And, And so, we here at HVPC, will not make the same mistake twice. We will not choose stagnation and the status quo. We will not sell out our future for the comfort of a warm bowl of stew in this moment. We will choose the harder path. We will choose to build a future here, a future where we can continue to raise up the next generation of Christians. Beginning in January 2020, the Go Center will come alongside of us and help us not get stuck again. And after three weeks of prayer and fasting, I'm going to ask you for the $12,500 that we need to pay the Go Center 
to spend those two years with us. As we regain our footing, as we recommit ourselves to outreach and to evangelism, as we build a future for this beautiful congregation and the people that we serve. Today, we begin 21 days of fasting and prayer, and I have to confess to you now that I have never fasted in my life. And so this is going to be a new experience for me. I think it might be a new experience for some of you too. And while scripture never commands us to fast, fasting is a profoundly biblical practice. Fasting was a regular practice amongst the saints of old. Later this month, we're going to celebrate the great American holiday, Thanksgiving Day. It falls on my birthday this year. We all know that the first Thanksgiving that was celebrated by the pilgrims in Massachusetts in 1621 to give thanks to God for letting them survive a dangerous ocean passage and a terrible winter. But most of us have forgotten that our nation also regularly observed days of fasting as well. When the terrible war broke out between the North and the South, President Lincoln called for a day, a national day of fasting and prayer. The idea is simple. God in his providence sends to individuals and to churches and to nations both blessings and afflictions. He sends blessings and afflictions to guide and to train his people in righteousness. When blessings come, we pause and we give Prayers of thanksgiving to God for His favor. And we feast. And when afflictions come, we pause to humble ourselves before God. To pray and repent and to ask God for His renewed favor. And we fast. Feasting and fasting. Thanksgiving and repentance. This is the rhythm of a healthy biblical community responding to God's providence. Both the blessings and the afflictions are signs of God's love for his people. God blesses us because he loves us. And God disciplines us because he loves us too. Because he wants to get our attention. Because he wants us to break out of bad habits. Because he wants us to get out of a rut. So how does fasting work? Well, let me begin by saying how it doesn't work. Fasting is a kind of self-denial. For a time we give up something that we enjoy. Food, wine, sex are the kinds of fasts that are mentioned in the Bible. And truth be told, it hurts a bit to give those things up. But we should never think of the suffering of a fast as a kind of penance, as a kind of payment for our sins. We should never think of the suffering of of the fast as a way to curry God's favor. The only suffering that pays for our sin, the only suffering that earns God's favor is the suffering of Christ on the cross. So what then does fasting do? Calvin, in his Institutes of Christian Religion, has some helpful things to say about fasting. Here's what Calvin writes, and I quote, A holy and lawful fast has three purposes. 
We use it either to, one, mortify and subdue the flesh that it may not be wanton. Two, to prepare the better for prayer and holy meditation. Or three, to give evidence of humbling ourselves before God when we confess our guilt before him. So the first purpose is to curb our appetites when we're too wanton or too gluttonous. The flesh is always warring against the spirit, and sometimes we just need to say no to the flesh. Halloween comes, and the house is full of candy, and I seem to think that I need to eat all of that candy, which usually lasts until about Thanksgiving, when the feasting ramps up again, and then we're into the Christmas season with endless cookies and parties and feasting, so that by the time that January 1 arrives, I feel like a beached whale. Mortifying the flesh, which is just an old way of saying beating our bodies into submission, mortifying our flesh is something that some of us need to do every once in a while. So that's one purpose of fasting, to mortify the flesh, but that's not what we're going to be doing in these 21 days. The second purpose of a fast is to prepare ourselves for prayer and holy meditation. Of this kind of fast, Calvin observes, When the Christians of Antioch laid hands on Barnabas and Paul that they might be better recommended for their ministry, which was of so great of importance, they joined in fasting and prayer. That's Acts 13.3. These two apostles afterward, when they appointed ministers to churches, also used prayer and fasting. Acts 14.23. In general... The only object which they had in fasting was to render themselves more alert and disencumbered for prayer. More alert and disencumbered for prayer. That's good. Alert means to be focused, to be wide awake. Disencumbered means to be free. That there's nothing holding us down or holding us back. That we're free of distraction. We should be focused and free of distractions in our prayer. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to have an important conversation with someone. And the television is on in the room. And their eyes keep flicking over to the screen while you're trying to talk to them. That doesn't exactly give you the impression that they're listening to you. And of course they're not. They're only half listening. And they're showing you that what you're saying is not as important to them as what the screen is saying to them. A few years ago, Hannah Kirsten and I took a webinar on small group leadership given by Saddleback Church. That's Rick Warren's 20,000 member church out there in California. And one of the things that surprised me uh, uh, in that uh, seminar that we learned was that Saddleback has a screen-free policy in all of their meetings. No computers, no handheld devices in their staff meetings. And they instituted this rule because it helps people to better listen to each other. They have a saying at Saddleback, which goes this way. Listen with your eyes. Listen with your eyes. If you're not looking at the person, you're not listening to that person. Now, people are important. 
And what they're saying to us is important. And we should do them the honor of listening to them carefully, to listen to them with our eyes, to be alert and unencumbered, we might say. But if that's true of a brother or sister in Christ, how much truer is it when we're listening to God that we should be alert and disencumbered of any distraction? Fasting will help us do that. Third purpose for fasting is humbling and repentance. Just as feasting is a sign of celebration and congratulations, fasting, giving up certain pleasures for a certain amount of time, can be a way of signaling to God and to each other that we are truly grieved by our sins and by the sins of the church or by the sins of the nation. Regarding this kind of fast, Calvin writes... It sometimes happens that God smites a nation with war or pestilence or some kind of calamity. In this common chastisement, it behooves the whole people to plead guilty and to confess their guilt. When the mind is affected as it ought, it cannot but give vent to itself in external manifestations, especially when it tends to the common edification that all, by openly confessing their sins, may render praise to divine justice and by their example mutually encourage one another. Hence, fasting, as a sign of humiliation, is a more frequent use in public than in private with, with private individuals. Although, as we have said, it is common to both. This is the kind of fast that President Lincoln called for in the early days of the Civil War. It's the kind of fast that we read about this morning in the prophet Joel. God's affliction has struck the whole people. And the whole people respond by confessing their guilt corporately, all together. Now as Americans, as individualists, we sometimes have trouble with corporate confession. We say to ourselves, well, sure, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Our streets aren't safe, immorality reigns, and hatred and finger-pointing are everywhere, but that's not my fault. I didn't do those things. And so we don't confess the sins of the nation. The Bible certainly talks about individual guilt and individual responsibility, but it also talks about the guilt of nations and the guilt of the people of God as a whole. The Bible calls for times of corporate or group repentance, and fasting is something that the people of God have done during those times of trouble. So today, beginning today and for the next three weeks, the session of this church is calling on this congregation to pray and to fast. The session did not make this decision lightly. In fact, the decision was taken only after a special separate meeting of the session had been called to discuss this one issue. And the session voted unanimously that this season of prayer and fasting is God's will for this congregation at this time. Calvin identified three purposes for fasting. One, to fight gluttony. Two, to be alert and disencumbered for prayer. And three, to humble ourselves before God and repent. 
We're not going to worry about gluttony in this fast. But we will fast for the latter two purposes. To be alert and disencumbered in our prayer. To humble ourselves before God and to repent. We know God wants this church to continue to grow and to prosper and to bring the freedom of the gospel to more and more people. We know that. That's built into the Great Commission. That's part of the DNA of the kingdom of God. The church was designed by God to always be expanding and spreading. And so when we see the slow and steady growth of this church stall and come to a halt... We know that's not in God's plan. And we know that can only be the result of our sin. And so it's time for us to repent and to ask God's forgiveness and to ask for his mercy so that we can get back on the right track. As we fast, as we turn aside for a while from some of the pleasures of life, we will find that we are more alert and focused in our prayers We will be unencumbered, undistracted as we seek God's face and God's favor. And we will begin to hear again the Master's voice leading us forward. This is an unusual step we're taking. And I hope you appreciate how wise your session has been in calling for this step, this step of setting aside time for fasting and prayer, this step of engaging with the ghost center to walk alongside of us for two years as we push forward in faith and get this thing moving again. It's not going to be easy. But it is going to be good. And I'm glad that we're going to be doing it together. All glory to God, maker of heaven and earth, And to his son, our redeemer, the head of the church, and to the Holy Spirit, our life and breath and power. To God be the glory in the church now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, for your abiding care, we thank you for your seasons of blessing and for your seasons of discipline. May we see in both of those your loving hand upon us. I thank you that you have not turned your back upon this church or given up on this church's work. We pray that as we respond to your call upon our lives, that we might be encouraged, that we might be built up, that we might grow stronger in our individual faith, even as we grow stronger as a congregation. And Lord, I pray for a fresh season of revival in this congregation. I pray that our hearts might be strangely stirred. And I pray as well that those who are still outside of the family of God might be welcomed in. Not for our benefit, but for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.